Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. I'm Alison McGovern, I'm the Chair of Progress, and I'm here with our Director, Richard Angel, and our Deputy Director, Stephanie Lloyd. Today, we're joined by Labour MP Stephen Kinnock, who was named this weekend on the Andrew Marr programme by the bad boy of Brexit, Aaron Banks. Stephen, he called you out. Well, it's a badge of honour for me. Yeah, I, too uh, right. I too love right. every minute of it. I, as I've um, already said to Aaron, he's starting to sound a bit stressed and rattled. Isn't he? So he should just come out and tell us where he got that money from. And I'm sure all these nasty rumours about his uh, good name and character will just go away. If you're listening, Aaron, there you go. Yeah. But I'm sure he is. Surprisingly, for a podcast that features you and indeed me, Stephen, we are not going to talk about Brexit today. Okay, that's a relief. <laughs> it is. Stephen and a number of my uh, colleagues in Westminster have got a book out. It is called Spirit of Britain, Purpose of Labour. So we're going to be discussing your book, Stephen. With me here, I've got Joe Jervis, who co-authored the book with Stephen. So, Mr. Kinnock, let's come straight to you. Tell us, can you just tell us what the book is about? Because it makes quite a big argument, doesn't it? So tell us uh, what the book is all about and why should Labour members read it? Yeah, so the the fundamental premise of the book is that our country is more divided than it's been at any time since the Second World War. And we pick out four main fault lines for those divisions, young versus old, graduate versus non-graduate, city versus town, and of course, uh, wealthy and not. And um, the argument we make is, of course, that the EU referendum didn't create those divides, but it threw them into sharp relief. And we really are more tribal now than we've ever been. Uh, and the argument fundamentally that we make is that it is Labour's historic mission to reunite the country. And um, it's not only the right thing to do from an electoral point of view, it's the only way we be believe that you can actually win a general election and win power and, and change things for the good, which is what we're there for. But it is also a moral duty of the party. And uh, the fault lines that we talk about are um, we, in essence, 
pull them together into two tribes that we call the Cosmopolitans and the Communitarians. So basically, we, all, all, those are the divisions. They kind of coalesce around these two tribes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're the sort of defining features of the two tribes. We're the first to recognize that this is a gross oversimplification and that everybody goes through their lives and goes on a journey. And you can often be born in a very uh, communitarian community and change completely and then go back to it or uh, the other way around. But for the sake of understanding what's happening in our country and if our party is serious about gaining power, we need to understand how that tribalism is working. So and then we can put policies in place. And But it's not just about policies. We also talk in the book about the six seismic shifts that we think our party has to make to reconnect with our communitarian heartlands. So the basic argument in the book is that we are becoming an increasingly cosmopolitan party and the uh, results of the 2017 election bear that out. It's fantastic to win in Canterbury and Kensington, uh, but we lost in Mansfield and Stoke and, and that we say is in essence a betrayal of the historic mission of our party. And in, in the book, um, you describe us as being caught between the anti-capitalist, statist, protectionist, hard left, and the open, globalised, defeatist, liberal centre. Just say a little bit about that and why. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds awfully like we might find that there's a third way. <laughs> oh God, oh God, <laughs> not soon. the dreaded but, third way. But, but tell <clears throat> us a bit more about these, these kind of hard ends of the spectrum that we're caught between. Yeah, so the narrative is that um, we, and we take the, that famous speech by Tony Blair in 2005 to party conference where he says, people often ask me, uh, people often say that we should stop and debate globalization. Well, you might as well stop and debate whether the autumn follows the summer. And the argument he makes is that globalization is going to roll over us like a steamroller, like it or not, you better just suck it up, guys. And we've seen, of course, globalization has uh, ripped the heart out of so many of our communities across the country, uh, had a massively negative impact on our manufacturing sector, for example. And that has been the root cause of so many of these splits and fault lines and divides, which have ultimately led to the, I think, cultural and values tribalism that we see now. So we're saying that that's not the right way for labor to look at the world because we believe that globalization is something that has to be harnessed and turned to the good. And if you take Germany as an example, they've managed to retain their manufacturing at 25% of GDP since the 1970s. Our manufacturing sector has completely collapsed between 19, the 1970s and now. But the answer is not to go uh, the way that our party increasingly has been going since 2015, which is to take this kind of increasingly centralized and statist approach, which is almost saying we don't believe that capitalism can be a force for good. And we don't believe in the ability of a social democratic government to regulate it and turn it into something that works for our communities. Now, I don't know whether we, we say the right way to go is the, the third way. But what we do say is that there are a number of shifts that we need to make to show the, our communitarian heartlands that we get it, that we understand it, and then a number of policies that we need to put in place that can redress the balance. But coming back to the cosmopolitans for a second, the argument in the book to a certain extent is that that cosmopolitan attitude kind of misses something that's important to our country and that labour is kind of more at home with cosmopolitan values. Why do you think that? Why do you think we've got there? I think that um, a lot of it is about, uh, it, 
Well, let's, let's divide the answer to that question, I think, into two. There's the pre-2015 and the post-2015. The pre-2015, I think the answer is because we saw globalization as a force of nature that was unstoppable, that we couldn't do anything about, and we allowed the uh, tipping of the balance away from manufacturing into financial services, away from uh, the entire whole nation politics that we should have to the concentration of resources and wealth and talent all going into London and the Southeast. I think that the decision to have uh, untrammeled, well, not untrammeled because it is you, you can regulate free movement of labor, but the decision to be the only large member state to not have transitional controls when the accession eight joined the European Union, I think had a, a big impact. And that was in 2004, of course. So a combination of circumstances which were about basically saying laissez-faire, the market rules, uh, that led to a sense in our communitarian heartlands that Labour wasn't uh, listening. And then since 2015, the problem has been that we come across as a party that almost doesn't believe in Britain or sees the United Kingdom as only ever being a source of colonialism, imperialism and oppression, that the nation state is an imperialist construct, that Russia is just misunderstood, that the source of all evil is Washington, Brussels and Tel Aviv. Uh, and that, I think, is utterly um, alienating to our communitarian heartlands. So whilst I think a lot of our economic policy and what was set out in the 2017 manifesto, putting clear red water between ourselves and the Tories and between kind of globalism uh, uh, in the sense that I've just described it, was absolutely right. We've got this fundamental problem. We, we're coming across as a party that doesn't believe in Britain and doesn't believe in, in our place in the world and doesn't want to sing the national anthem and doesn't have that sense of, you know, uh, putting national security front and centre. So we've what we need is a Labour Party that has those radical Keynesian economic policies about investment-driven growth, but combines it with real strength on national security and a, and a real sense of, of, of civic patriotism in what we stand for. Yeah, it's the joy of being a Westminster, of course, that yeah. the bells always ring at some point. Um, we'll come to the break in a second, but just one final word. This In America, there's obviously this big debate about whether identity politics is you know, so-called identity politics has damaged uh, the left's ability to respond to economic issues. Do you think we are, do you think that's an issue in the UK? Absolutely. One of the, I mean, the first seismic shift we talk about actually in the book is how we've got to become a party that does much more to celebrate what we have in common than what uh, differentiates and divides us. And of course, we it's absolutely right to celebrate the huge progress that we've made in terms of the social liberal causes that we believe in. And I, one thing, one of the reasons I think we've called this communitarians and cosmopolitans rather than somewheres and anywheres or open and closed is I've not met a communitarian that believes that society should be closed. I think this open closed thing is a kind of an easy get out clause for a lot of people. They, they are apps that, you know, there's no problem, I think, across the vast majority of the, the population about um, gay marriage or some of the, you know, the great progress that we've made in terms of allowing people to express themselves and to love who they want to love and to be who they want to be. But there's uh, a real um, issue, I think, about um, 
talking so much about diversity that you f- forget to celebrate what we have in common and that i think can be very dangerous for so the did left. you want to come in yeah there? i just think i think there's an important point here that uh it's an important point that the that celebrating similarities and bringing people together then allows people to recognize the differences and learn about the differences if you have no active kind of attempt to bring people together then how are they supposed to learn about other cultures learn about people that are different from them um and you need point, think, you need points that bind people exactly. even through their differences you need those yeah. common bonds um and i use a national citizen service as a, a great example of something which is a policy which can bring people together and, and teach people about other people from different backgrounds um as a, some that should have been a labor policy in my idea in my mind that should have been something that we were doing when we were last in government and uh yeah so i think that that's probably one of the the real key points in the book i think um okay well mm. we are going to come to the future and policy ideas in a second just after we have this short break hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome back. We're with uh, Joe Jervis and Stephen Kinnock, um, who've written a book, Spirit of Britain, at Purpose of Labour, about where they think the Labour Party should go next. I'm Alison McGovern. I'm the Chair of Progress. And I'm here with Stephanie Lloyd, Deputy Director of Progress, and Richard Angel, who's the Director of Progress. Joe, before we took a break there, you were just talking about how perhaps people a little bit can misunderstand what communitarianism is about. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I think communitarians are often kind of stereotyped as being um, socially illiberal. Um, And I think uh, the reality is that that's not the case at all. I mean, Stephen mentioned earlier that uh, generally they support gay rights, they support equal pay campaigns, they support um, anti-racism legislation. Um, But I think the difference is they really do value uh, cohesive communities, stability, economic security, national security, uh, self-reliance, personal responsibility, all these kind of values that it's not that cosmopolitans don't value them at all, but it's that cosmopolitans really do prioritize um, 
individual liberty, for instance. They have a very kind of right, a human rights focused agenda. Um, and I think sometimes people misunderstand the communitarian kind of approach to having a kind of level playing field and a and social norms and playing by the rules as being quite um, kind of uh, exclusive and uh, kind of not letting other people in. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it's just that they they like those kind of uh, kind of cohesive nature, the cohesive nature of communities, and the fact that everyone can kind of get along, get along well, basically. And, and we see this all over Britain, right? You know, mm. the, northern cities are both quite cosmopolitan, but also fiercely communitarian. They take great mm. pride in being, you know, Leeds or Sheffield, but can also be quite cosmopolitan. But I also find that I like that I live in a diverse area, but I don't necessarily know any of my neighbours. And that's quite a cosmopolitan trait, isn't it? It's the kind of valuing diversity, but not actually living it. Whereas there are people who would live uh, cosmopolitan lives that actually, they want to know all of their neighbours and they don't care where they're from or what they, uh, how they associate themselves. They more just want to know they can share keys and like look after each other when the milkman doesn't come or, or does come, but doesn't, that people don't pick up the milk at that house. Yeah. So. And I think, I think that's right. And Steph, you know, some of our, Labour institutions, ideally, should be the way that, uh, you know, pe people who might be quite cosmopolitan are also able to find a sense of community and communitarianism. Yeah, I think so. I think that's I think that's totally true. And I think it is a difficult conversation that can go on, particularly around that kind of, you know, people can say like identity politics and things like that. And I'm like, I'm not quite sure. I mean, there were large parts of it where it's like we just used to call it civil rights rather than anything else. But it is that difficult part of how do you, once you've done the big ticket items of uh, identity politics or civil rights, you know, once you've done gay marriage or you've done the rest, of, how do you do those smaller changes that are more in that are more about social change that aren't just about a change of legislation? And that's the bit where I think it's starting to get more difficult because it's that's how, when the how tensions. Do you, how do you build communities where people feel genuinely accepted and yeah. feel? And like there's some there's some really good examples of that, I think. You know, I think of sport and the arts as being mm. probably those places where people are encouraged to be themselves, but also have a fierce sense of community. So moving forward, Stephen, the the book is full of ideas about things that we could and should do as a labour movement. Do you want to just pick out your favourite ones and tell us a bit about them? Sure. I mean, I think one of the points we make in the book is that it's there's no point getting too deep into the weeds of retail politics until you've got the actual overarching language and mindset of the party right. And we so we talk first of all about uh, six uh, seismic shifts that we think the party should make. And I, I won't bore you with all of them, but there's one or two examples. I mean, we talk a lot about the impact that mass higher education has had on the country. And um, of course, it's, you know, it was a big eye-catching pledge uh, that we should have 50% of our young people going to university. But let's think about the impact that that's had in terms of brain drain going out of a lot of our communities, contributing to the sense that those communities had of being left behind. It's not only pounds, shillings and pence that have left, it's some of their brightest and best because, young because people. Because graduate jobs were never found in those places. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And, and So people basically, once they'd got their degree, then they felt you know, if I want to make the most of this and, and get a properly graduate job, I have to leave the community I grew up in. Exactly. And okay. that 
contributes to this tribalism because when you look at the emergence of the cosmopolitan tribe, it's predominantly in cities where people have moved to to go to university. So you've seen a, it's a, almost a double whammy where there's been a brain drain from our smaller towns and rural areas into cities. And then people also, once they go to university, of course, university has its own acclimatization and identity changing process. And you've you've therefore had, I think, a, the emergence of a new set of values in people who've left the towns that they've uh, and villages that they've come from, and that's had a massive impact on the country. So the, we you end up you end up being basically being from nowhere. I mean, if you come from a sort of very ordinary working class place and you go to university and don't really belong there because you know people can sort of tell that you're different, and then you go home and you've changed. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean we, that's the that's sort of sort of sad version of it, really, is that you end up yeah, being, I mean, losing touch with your roots and not really belonging in the world that you've joined. I went to university and I, I then came back and was like really involved in politics and had come out. I mean, like my friends were like, Who is this person? <laughs> yeah, right, where did yeah. I come from? I was like, no, well, I've never met her before. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A personality I mean, transplant. My my voice, I think, changed pretty much overnight. I remember my uh my mum and dad and their friends just giving me absolute ridicule completely down yeah, the banks yeah, as yeah, we would say in Merseyside yeah, yeah exactly overnight and, spoke like a person from the southeast and of course people I'm not at all arguing that people shouldn't be able to realize their dreams and go to any university they want to and follow that but one of the reasons they've done that is because of the massive lack of investment in apprenticeships in vocational training in the uh, types of jobs and it relates back to the to total failure to have an industrial strategy the knock-on effect of that has been to rip the intellectual fabric out of uh, our um, towns and rural areas and to put them in the big cities so let's think, not forget the, not this just, eco economic change not, leads to values and cultural change exactly and it's not just industrial strategy in the sense of like um where wealth is created purely economically it is that cultural side of it as well like you know the guardian used to be the manchester guardian Absolutely. i mean they have some journalist there but it is not the manchester guardian any longer apart yeah. from its football coverage yeah. obviously it, uh, but but why don't we you know why isn't there a a kind of why isn't there an intellectual sense of people who've got something to say outside of london either well of course the other big impact is social capital so you know we know the way the world works about networks and contacts and and all of that shifts to another part of the country and urbanization and the sort of rise of the cosmopolitans has is all connected and it's intrinsically linked. But the fundamental question then is how should that translate into policy? And the is it really right that we make our eleven billion pound spending pledge on tuition fees in the light of the need to reunite our deeply divided country? And if the driving force for reuniting our deeply divided country is rebuilding the financial capital, intellectual capital, and social capital of our small towns uh, and, and rural areas, then in my view, nothing in that pledge works. So there must be better ways of spending that 11 billion in terms of investing in education, investing in our people to address the deep cultural chasm that we're now looking at i mean the easy answer to that is no it isn't right in terms of where we should be spending our money or what we should be doing on it in all different ways as a as a labor party and you certainly shouldn't be going to some of the most privileged people already that exist but i think the interesting point that you make there is that 
I don't think anybody has a problem. I, I certainly don't have a problem with more people going to university because a more educated society is beneficial in, in lots of ways. And even if you just look at the money it brings back in that we spend out, it by far outstrips in terms of how much we spend. But the problem is, is it was the other 50%. It was what, what were we going to do about the other 50%? And it's that age old tale of we need to stop thinking of vocational and academic in massively different circles. Other, of course, unless it's medicine, which we proclaim to be academic, but is the it's most vocational, vocational thing in the world. Yeah. But that's what rich people do. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, but there is a huge amount of structural change that we need to start looking at around, as you say, the fabric of that society, how it works with industry much more locally and, and what it is that we actually do in order to do a policy change. That is not looking at all of these bits in tiny little boxes and going, right, well, what do we think about 16 to 18? What do we think about people that do undergrad? What do we think about this? And how do we fund all these bits differently? The only way it will work is when we start looking at a fully tertiary education system in, in terms of 16 onwards and how that links with industry, how that works within regions and growth. Because actually, some of the biggest employers, some of the best ways to bring in that regional diversity is through big institutions like universities and trying to pull that back out of London and making that spread much more yeah, around it, the country. Because they will be anchor institutions in some of the places where we need to do it. Um, further education, of course, Stephen, noticeable by its absence in the budget recently. I mean, if, if Labour really wanted to make hay on some of these issues that you're talking about, couldn't we have a bigger campaign for proper funding of further education that is, is essentially vocational? I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, as we all accept that there's only so much money to go around and it's a fun, yeah, the, the, the tuition fees pledge in our 2017 budget was the biggest uh, pledge of all by some distance. And more it, than double that for the welfare state. Yeah, exactly. Just throwing uh, that in there. Just throwing, chucking that in there. <laughs> so, you know, early years, further education, because I would much rather see that uh, being and you know maybe you end up with some sort of mixed model on university tuition fees, but um, that is not the right way to spend eleven billion. And, and the, the the I suppose the key point we try to make in the book is uh, connecting the policies that we are putting forward with the what's happening in terms of our the culture and the values of the country in which we live. So not just in terms of the old class arguments and the old, it's it's actually about how we um, avoid this deep deep polarization and fragmentation that's happening across the country i think that's what was worrying you that that biggest spending pledge in labor's manifesto it seemed to me it wasn't about giving great opportunities to young people it was about aiding one one side of the culture war that is happening and uh, and seeing ourselves as firmly coming down on one side of it so i would like to see our biggest spending pledge go on something that's universal that's for everyone exactly. that's about bringing people together the sure start center whether you go to whether you're the mum that's on uh, the best maternity package going or whether you've not been in work at all but you go to the same community center because of your locality i'd have liked to have seen it go on a tertiary opportunity for everybody that could have been across the board you know extending the student loan system to those who don't go to higher yeah. education to invest in their first car or their uniform or whatever they might have needed to better themselves in a way that wasn't uprooting their lives leaving their families and going to university and that's what's fearful about some of the stuff that you see in labor politics and the democrats is that we seem to be wanting to aid a cultural war that actually we're losing because we like this us and them because it gives us a strong sense of identity all of those are in it arguably because we're all actually on individual level 
cosmopolitans about yeah. it. Um, but what we really want to do is end the culture war and bring people together. Exactly. It's that we have got to be the community we seek to replicate. Absolutely right, Richard. Um, and I feel that we have to bring this to an end now, but I feel like this has been a rich uh, discussion and one that I can think of about 10 different podcasts we could do on yeah. each little bit of it. So um, thank you very much, Joe and Stephen, thank for coming on. Much, much appreciated. Now, before we finish, um, every week Connor asks a political pub quiz question. Well, guess what? Connor is not here. So the quiz book is in my hands. Um, What's Ste the question? Steph. Let's see if you know it. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, you're a feminist, right? I love it when you just embarrass me publicly. Yeah, I hate then. quizzes, so <laughs> other people must suffer too. Anyway, uh, Margaret Bonfield was the first female cabinet minister. What was her title and under which Labour prime minister was she in the cabinet? If I don't know the answer, does that mean that you don't count me as a feminist? Anymore? I'm taking away the... your <laughs> feminist badge and gun. If you don't know the answer, you can uh, leave it to other people and they need to get their answer in by uh, emailing office at progressonline.org.uk or, or tweet that Connor. Tweet it at that Connor while he's on his day off. Tweet yeah. Connor. Is there a prize? There is. You get a progress mug. Oh, Can you right. believe it? Right. What more do you want? I'm going to phone a friend right now. Exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you everyone for listening and uh, we have been the Progressive Britain podcast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.